Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Elmer, MD. He is lead author on an article published in the August Critical Care Medicine entitled Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome After Spontaneous Intracerebral Hemorrhage. Elmer is currently a fellow in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Elmer. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. I was hoping you could talk a little bit uh, about your background and and your interest in in critical care. Uh, As we were discussing earlier, you are uh, trained uh, via the emergency department pathway, and um, not that many people, I I guess, we get to speak to who are are trained in that pathway, and I I wonder how your interest in critical care grew. I was. Well, uh, as you say, I trained in emergency medicine. I did a four-year emergency medicine residency up in Boston, and I was peripherally interested in critical care going into residency, but that interest really blossomed during residency. We obviously take care of a lot of critically ill patients in the emergency department, and in the ED there's a push-pull of uh, efficiency and throughput while trying to do the best thing you can for the patient in front of you and also for the patients in the waiting room. And so really I decided to pursue a critical care fellowship to try to hone my ability to care for those critically ill patients in the ED and really um, try to improve and optimize their care. As a fellow, my interest in critical care certainly has uh, grown and maintained, um, and my research interests are uh, somewhat expressed in this article, or really to try to elucidate the, the right the management strategies, the optimal management strategies to strike a balance between the interplay and the push-pull of really providing excellent neurologic critical care and neuroprotection while while balancing that with the cardiopulmonary and uh, multi-system organ support of patients who at the end of the day are like many other ICU patients with multi-system organ dysfunction or failure and a, a lot of competing needs. Yeah, it's uh, certainly your your article certainly points at the the challenges in balancing the various therapies that we have in terms of supporting different organs and, and having that push pull, as you put it, um, between different therapies. Can you can you provide us a little bit about some of the the context of this study, the background, and why you decided to pursue this area um, of uh, study? Yeah. So. As a resident, it struck me as interesting, a couple observations. When we would care for neurologically ill patients with intracerebral hemorrhage, brain injury, subarachnoid hemorrhage, we focused really all of our efforts on neuroprotection. We would ventilate them with the brain in mind. We would control their blood pressure with the brain in mind. And I I wondered with strategies like that that may or may not be optimal for the brain whether or not we would be causing harm to the patient, to their lungs, to their heart. Um, And in particular, I was interested in the the interplay between the two and the idea that what 
ultimately might be best for the patient might not be best for the brain. And similarly, that causing lung injury, say, might ultimately be detrimental to the brain, either through release of systemic inflammatory mediators or just through ultimately injuring a critically ill patient and worsening their outcome. So this study was really a first step towards trying to answer that question. It was really, at its heart, an epidemiologic study looking at both uh, how often patients with intracerebral hemorrhage develop acute respiratory distress and syndrome, and then also looking at the impact of its outcome on those patients. Great. So for the for some of the listeners in the, in the crowd, you know, may not uh, have that much experience um, with neurocritical care and neurologically injured patients. And I was hoping you could maybe just briefly um, discuss some possible understanding of etiologies of acute lung injury in uh, the neurologically injured and this concept of neurogenic pulmonary edema? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, you know, I guess first I would say one big unknown uh, I certainly don't know is whether or not neurogenic pulmonary edema is the same thing, both uh, pathophysiologically and mechanistically as lung injury and ARDS, or whether or not they are, in fact, two pathogenically distinct entities. They certainly are both non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, but whether or not the mechanisms uh, that underlie them each are the same or different remains to be answered. The concept of neurogenic pulmonary edema, to my knowledge, was first described in 1908 in a patient who died of convulsive status epilepticus and had an autopsy done. And the report essentially reads that they weighed the patient's lungs and they were heavier than they should have been and they looked at them under a microscope and there was pulmonary vascular congestion and extravasation of proteinaceous fluid in the alveolar space. Uh, For anyone who is familiar with the pathologic description of the acute respiratory distress syndrome is essentially the same no one really knows for sure why neurogenic pulmonary edema develops. Like most complex problems in critical care, it's probably multifactorial. There have been a variety of explanations that I've read about its etiology. A lot of folks seem to think that elevated intracranial pressure leads to a sympathetic surge that causes pulmonary vasoconstriction, leads to increased pulmonary capillary endothelial permeability and capillary leak, and the release of a lot of downstream vasoactive mediators like histamine and bradykinin. Uh, Certainly also pulmonary vasoconstriction will increase the intravascular pressure and will lead then to additional extravasation of fluid. Brain injury, as many of your listeners uh, certainly know, can lead to myocardial dysfunction, and there's certainly a brain-heart axis, and so myocardial dysfunction can lead to increased pulmonary hydrostatic pressures and edema. And then also certainly there is a systemic inflammatory response to brain injury, whether it be TBI, intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage, a large portion of these patients become febrile, develop a leukocytosis, 
and develop really a full systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And so it may also be that systemic inflammatory mediators in intracranial hemorrhage, like in pancreatitis or burns or septic shock, really prime the lungs for uh, subsequent injury induced by the high tidal volumes that we sometimes expose these patients to. That that last postulate uh, is obviously very similar to the proposed mechanisms for development of lung injury and ARDS and some of the other inflammatory states that I've talked about. Now, where it gets tricky is that the management strategies which we use for ARDS and, say, a septic patient, things like permitting uh, mild hypoxemia, permissive hypercapnia, using a high PEEP strategy and a low tidal volume, things like that are historically really anathema in neurointensive care units where we try to drive the oxygen level up to improve brain oxygenation. We don't tolerate high CO2s because we worry about the ICP, and we don't sometimes tolerate high PEEPs because we don't want to reduce the venous drainage back to the, back to the thorax. And so the, the appropriate management strategy for those patients in a neuro ICU is a future challenge which we'll need to look into. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's, it's just hearing uh, as I was listening to you, you know, the the concept of sort of competing therapies for different organ systems, but the interplay between the different organ systems and hurting one may in fact hurt another. So it it really becomes quite complex, and and where the where those optimal therapies for different types of organ failures uh, lie uh, is, is really just beginning to be elucidated, I suppose. It does. That, that is well within the arena of the art of medicine right now. We are far from, from knowing the answer. You know, I was wondering, before you begin, uh, I just wanted to speak a little bit about your, your, your methods and, your, and some of the interesting findings. Um, I noted uh, in reading your manuscript that the your study took place during the time in which uh, kind of the, the definitions of ARDS changed. And I, I wondered how, how that was as an investigator, and um, uh, certainly you, you, you compensated for it. But I, I imagine that there was a little bit of angst at the time. Uh, well, there, there certainly was the change you're referring to when we did this study. And actually, in the first version of the manuscript we submitted, for publication, we were using the standard consensus uh, definition of acute lung injury, which was, I guess, uh, written in 1994. And while our manuscript was out with reviewers, the new Berlin definition, which changed the terminology somewhat, got rid of the term acute lung injury, and modified slightly the the definitions of ARDS that was published. We were fortunate in that somewhat serendipitously, the working definition we had used for ARDS in our study really closely paralleled the Berlin definition. And so we avoided having to revamp our analysis at all. Um, Obviously, in the neuro ICU, it's a relatively infrequent patient who had a pulmonary artery catheter placed, and so we really used uh, 
driven definition of ARDS um, in our study. Uh, and again, that, that fairly closely paralleled the Berlin definition. So we had, as a group, uh, a few days of panic while we went back through everything and uh, made sure that what we had done would still, would still meet the new consensus definition, but uh, we were lucky. But as you alluded to, it was certainly a, a nervous time. Still, congratulations on this uh, it was a well-written uh, article and certainly deservedly published. C can you describe a bit about um, how you went about your study and, uh, um, and then some of the uh, interesting findings that you've alluded to in terms of title volume? A absolutely. So this was, uh, as your listeners will have picked up, a fairly large retrospective chart review. We looked at patients who presented over a 10-year period from 2000 to 2010. And we included in our study patients who presented with spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage and who required mechanical ventilation sometime in the first five hospital days. And we chose to limit our chart review to the first five days because we wanted to minimize the number of patients who we classified as having ARDS who developed it say, two weeks into their hospital stay from a ventilator-associated pneumonia or a catheter-associated urinary tract infection. We really wanted to hone in on those who developed ARDS from that initial intracerebral hemorrhage. We excluded from our study the usual suspects, pediatric patients, patients whose goals of care were made comfort measures only before they were admitted to the ICU patients who had ICH secondary to vasculitis or hemorrhagic conversion of stroke or a brain tumor, and those with significant immunodeficiency with full-blown HIV AIDS or who are actively receiving chemotherapy on high-dose uh, immunomodulatory meds. And we ended up with a cohort of about 700 patients who were admitted uh, at two hospitals, and we went back and we did a structured chart review. The main exposure that we were interested in was high tidal volume ventilation, and to my knowledge, there's no great way methodologically of quantifying high tidal volume ventilation in the literature, and no one really knows whether 8 cc's per kilo is less harmful than 10 or 12, whether it's the number of breaths at high tidal volume or the amount of time ventilated at a high tidal volume. For, for this study, we chose to hone in on the percent of the overall ventilator time that a patient spent receiving above 8 cc per kilogram. So we really looked at uh, the, the duration of exposure above that threshold tidal volume. And was that within the first five days or prior to the, any development of So that was in injury? the first five days. And then uh, in order to avoid looking at variables that were the result of ARDS, uh, from the time that a patient met ARDS criteria, we censored all of the, all of the data thereafter. So uh, in theory, all of the high tidal volume that they were exposed to let, uh, was during the time leading up to the diagnosis of ARDS up to the first five days. 
And so from there, we looked at a range of covariates, essentially markers of disease severity, um, both relevant to intracranial hemorrhage, things like the hematoma volume, the location of it, the GCS of the patient, and then also risk factors for ARDS that had been established in previous studies, tobacco use, diabetes, hypoalbuminemia, things like that. So we coded patients as either yes or no having ARDS on each day, and we gave them a timestamp for when they developed ARDS, and then we did a fairly straightforward analysis looking at the risk factors for development of ARDS. And uh, and so your main finding was that it, it increasing, and it was incremental, I believe, increasing tidal volumes increased risk of development of ARDS. Yes. Yeah, so uh, as you say, high exposure to high tidal volume ventilation was actually the strongest predictor of development of ARDS in this patient population. And the patients who spent more time ventilated at even higher tidal volumes, 10 or 12 uh, cc's per kilo of predicted body weight were at even higher risk. We also found that in our cohort, many of the same risk factors for development of ARDS were also present, things like exposure to blood transfusions, packed red blood cells, and FFP, and uh, emergent surgery, tobacco use, things like that all were predictive of risk of ARDS, which I think highlights that patients with ICH are not actually that uh, different in terms of the pathogenesis of lung injury as patients with other inflammatory conditions like sepsis. And the other important finding that I think is worth highlighting is that not only was high tidal volume ventilation the strongest risk factor for development of ARDS, it was actually also the strongest risk factor for in-hospital mortality. So the odds ratio, I think, was about two and a half for in-hospital mortality for those ventilated at high tidal volumes compared to those who were not. And, in fact, exposure to high tidal volumes was a stronger risk factor for in-hospital mortality than any of the conventional markers of disease severity and intracerebral hemorrhage like hematoma volume or presenting uh, Glasgow Coma Scale score. Really interesting. Was um, the development of ARDS uh, as predictive of mortality as that of tidal volume? So, interestingly, it was not. And I think that that speaks to what is ultimately a methodologic flaw with retrospective studies. In, in order for our patients to be diagnosed with ARDS, they had to have a P to F ratio less than 300 on two consecutive blood gases, and they had to have a chest X-ray, which was obtained and which we uh, went back and we reviewed again with a board-certified radiologist that would meet criteria for ARDS. And so you can imagine a cohort of particularly sick patients who clinicians may be spending their time appropriately having goals of care discussions with family who maybe are not getting daily chest x-rays or in whom the density of blood gas 
that the sickest patients and those at highest risk of developing ARDS were probably also the patients in whom we were missing ARDS because they were less intensively tested. So I think, uh, I certainly can't think of a reason why high tidal volume ventilation would so strongly predispose to mortality in these patients other than through development of lung injury. We racked our brains and tried to think whether or not high tidal volume ventilation might be collinear with some other high morbidity or mortality condition, and we just couldn't think of one. So I suspect that the signal we're seeing with uh, an injurious effect of high tidal volume ventilation is through the pathway of inducing ARDS, whether or not we were able to formally diagnose those patients with ARDS retrospectively. Hmm, interesting. W- was there any sort of uh, standard of care in terms of ventilator management for the, these groups of patients in these two ICUs? So the, the short answer is no. The, the date range we picked, um, looking at patients from 2000 to 2010, really caught the genesis of the wide application of lung protective ventilatory strategies from that initial uh, landmark ARDSNET trial. And so, uh, actually, when we looked at it, and this is not included in the manuscript, uh, exposure to high tidal volume ventilation decreased over time, absolutely. So, in 2000, when you go through a chart, it would not be atypical for a patient to be receiving a liter tidal volume or 800 cc's or even greater than a liter tidal volume. And over time, the, the ARDSNET findings percolated their way through our neuro ICUs. And so tidal volumes were decreased. But I think even uh, today, and I think many studies have demonstrated this, not just in neuro ICUs, but in a range of ICUs, what clinicians think they're doing and what they're actually doing with ventilator management are not always the same. And so often we'll have patients ventilated with 500 or 600 cc tidal volumes, and we're telling ourselves that we're using low tidal volume ventilation, for, but, but for that actual patient it may be that a tidal volume of 350 or 400 cc's might be more optimal and more protective. So uh, the strategies did change over the course of the study, but I'm not sure they, they converged on the optimal management strategy yet. So I, I, mean, I suppose that the low tidal volume strategy could also be a marker for later in time and you know, the other improvements in critical care of these types of patients. Um, as one other plausible uh, explanation for the mortality differences. That, that, that may well be. We used year of presentation as a covariate in our okay. analysis Great. to try to control for that, for that exact effect, and we found that patients actually did uh, just as well when they presented in the year 2000 as they did in the year 2010, although we had few enough patients in each uh, year strata, particularly earlier, that we may have been underpowered to detect an improvement in outcomes that developed over time. It's interesting. That type of information is very fable in terms of explaining away the results, but it was also somewhat disappointing that the, that the overall mortality hasn't improved over the last 10 years. It is. You know, intracerebral hemorrhage is a, a tough, a tough disease entity to study. It's 
probably the most devastating form of neurologic injury. Mortality hovers between 30 and 50 percent and hasn't really improved over time. Disability is uh, significant in almost three-quarters of survivors. And to my knowledge, there haven't been any large studies that have demonstrated a treatment strategy or a therapy that really consistently improves outcomes in these patients. So maybe with that in mind, you can kind of put this in perspective of the current modalities of uh, therapy that um, I think perhaps some of us are familiar with in terms of triple H therapy or driving hypertension and hypervolemia and hyperoxia, I suppose, uh, and uh, and how that interplay you think uh, is is currently uh, exists and how it would look maybe in the future. Yes. Yeah, so. I think the, the bottom line is we don't know yet. The, the triple H therapy that you're referring to for your listeners who uh, are not familiar with the neuro ICU population is a management strategy primarily for subarachnoid hemorrhage to try to prevent uh, delayed cerebral ischemia and cerebral vasospasm. And the three H's are hypertension, which we often drive to supraphysiologic goals, hypervolemia, and hemodilution to try to decrease the blood viscosity and improve cerebral perfusion. To my knowledge, no component of that Triple H therapy has ever been consistently shown to improve outcomes in subarachnoid hemorrhage, much less in other neuro-ICU patients, and some of them, particularly hemodilution, are probably harmful. So while it may have made sense from a mechanistic perspective and from bench studies at the bedside, I'm not sure that those are really the best management strategies. Certainly in the neuro-ICUs that I've worked in or rotated through, we seem to be with regards to hypervolemia and hemodilution backing off and moving more towards euvolemia. Mm -hmm. Um, Hypertension, we're still titrating um, on an individual patient basis. But my humble prediction, although I may well be wrong, is that as we become savvier managing these neurocritically ill patients and become more aware of the interplay between brain injury and cardiopulmonary dysfunction, we may find that patients are actually more optimally managed with somewhat more conservative strategies. With respect to the tidal volume that we ventilate them with, I guess the question is really should any patient, these these neurocritically ill patients included, should any patient be ventilated with high tidal volumes? And I think that that's an ongoing debate in the critical care community, but it seems as though there is building evidence that even in patients without lung injury, if you're sick enough to be intubated and you're sick enough to be in an intensive care unit, then you're probably sick enough to be at risk of ARDS and are likely to benefit from lung protective ventilatory strategies. Yeah, I think uh, that's becoming more and more realized as time goes on. I'm trying to remember, taking a step back, you looked at um, your 
your tidal volumes you you examined were as low as eight cc's per kilo and as high as twelve. Is that That's about right? Correct. Were, were there just were there no patients in a smaller tidal volume group that could be examined, or was that an intent of the? There were very few patients who were ventilated with any frequency at lower tidal volume, uh, and we would have just been underpowered to look at. Uh, to try to answer a question like whether four or six cc's per kilo would be more optimal. Of our almost 700 patients, uh, about 450 or 475, if I recall correctly, were ventilated uh, almost 100% of the time with tidal volumes greater than 8 mLs per kilogram. Yeah, it certainly makes sense uh, uh, historically as well. Great. Well, you know, it, it also reminds me of the um, you know, the changes we've seen in ICP management, at least in, in my world of traumatic brain injury. Um, we're, we're driving a, a cerebral perfusion pressure too great did result uh, in apparent uh, cardiopulmonary dysfunction and uh, how those guidelines have changed over time. And I think there, this study is a, is a nice contribution uh, to that body of evidence. Uh, and does suggest that probably more conservative approaches, as I think we've learned in a lot of areas of critical care, are uh, perhaps uh, most appropriate. Well, yeah, I think I think that's true. As you say, I think that historically, and I'm obviously young in my career, but when I look back at descriptions of management strategies, we really want for our medical care to work and be helpful, and we have this idea, which is, I think, understandable, that if some is good, more is better. Um, but I'm hard-pressed to think of any therapy that, that I know of, at least, that driving something to a non-physiologic or a superphysiologic goal is superior to a more conservative approach where uh, less may be more. Yeah, there's some certainly some wonderful stories um, of how things have changed over time and how much we have learned, but yet how much more we have to learn about managing these patients, and especially this very challenging patients that, uh, that have sparked your interest. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. I don't know if there are other points that you would like to get across to the audience. No, you know, I think we've covered uh, most, of the important, most of the important details. I think uh, for me, the real take-home message from this study, obviously, as you say, there is a tremendous number of unanswered questions uh, but for now, I think that uh, high tidal volume ventilation probably leads to ARDS in patients with intracerebral hemorrhage. I think it probably increases their mortality, and I'm hard-pressed to think of a patient who would routinely benefit from it. So I think ICH remains a very difficult disease entity to treat. We have a, a ways to go, but we may be able to uh, prevent harm to a significant number of patients by more routinely applying, more rigorously applying low tidal volume ventilatory strategies to this, to this patient population. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, really enjoyed speaking with you and looking forward to future works from your, uh, your area of interest. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org.
iCritical.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes, or subscribe at iTunes by searching for SCCM. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.